The Otay Mesa Detention Center is San Diego County's biggest COVID-19 hotspot. The Immigration Detention Center has more than 200 confirmed cases of the virus, which represents nearly half of all the cases in the 92154 zip code. This is an outbreak that both detainees and authorities saw coming. Areas where many people live together, Navy ships, jails, nursing homes, are all at a higher risk of outbreaks because of an inability to social distance. For the San Diego Union Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is a special live episode of your San Diego News Fix. Kate Morrissey, you're the immigration reporter through Union Tribune. Let's start with some context. What are the conditions inside the detention center that make it such a COVID hotspot? So sort of like you said, um, this detention center, like most um, detention centers or prisons, uh, keeps people fairly close together. Um, so you have, you know, bunk beds in, in many of the lower security um, housing units. You'll have eight bunk, bunk beds together in in sort of a small bay off of the, the day area. And so um, it's really difficult for people to stay away from someone um, if they're being housed together. And so um, what we know is that um, towards the end of March, an employee for the facility tested positive um, shortly followed by a second employee and then the first detainee at the facility. And, and since then, the number of cases has, has grown quite a lot. Um, the last number that I have um, is from yesterday. It was 217. Um, that's a mixture of people in immigration custody and people in um, custody of U.S. Marshal Service, which holds uh, people for federal criminal cases while they're waiting um, for their trials or waiting to be sentenced. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning of this outbreak, when um, people started realizing that this was going to be a big problem, what was the government's strategy to prevent an outbreak kind of in the early days of coronavirus? So what they've said is they um, did certain kinds of of announcements to people in, in custody to say, hey, you need to be washing your hands more. You need to be staying away from each other. Um, They waited a while before uh, masks were distributed to uh, people in custody. I believe um, the people who were employees at the facility um, had the option of wearing them a little bit sooner. Um, It was uh, mid-ish April before we saw um, detainees getting masks. Um, And then they only became required for people working in the facility around late April. So it's been sort of a a progress, a progression of of responses um, as time has gone on. Mm -hmm. They've also um, been checking temperatures of anybody going into the facility. They've limited visitation. So family members can't come see uh, their loved ones who are inside. Um, Attorneys have had some different, you know, requirements put on them to be able to to go talk to their clients, um, and then anyone who works at the facility who um, has a temperature of you know above a certain amount is is checked before they're allowed in. Mm-hmm. And could you give us a sense of the population inside the detention center? Because you know it's it's similar to a jail, but it isn't a jail. Why don't you kind of explain what uh, kind of the population is like? Sure. So for people who are in immigration custody, they are in um, civil detention. So there are certain restrictions on 
what that attention, what that detention is allowed to be like, because it's not technically a prison. It's not something that is for um, punishment for a crime. It's something that is um, meant legally, in, in a legal sense, it is for holding people while they're waiting for their immigration court hearings or while they're waiting to be deported. And immigration officials have to be able to say, look, this person is a flight risk, or look, we believe this person is a danger to the community um, in order to, to hold them inside. Uh, so it's a, the, the sort of legal distinction about like what conditions are allowed to be like for someone in that situation versus someone who is say serving a criminal sentence are a little bit in the weeds, but um, become more important when you're looking at how judges are deciding um, some of these cases that we're seeing now in federal court in terms of um, who's being released because of COVID-19 outbreaks inside facilities. Mm -hmm. And we have seen some legal action uh, from the courts, which has resulted in the release of some medically vulnerable people. Why don't you explain how did that come about? So the American Civil Liberties Union here in San Diego and Imperial counties filed a lawsuit. They actually filed two lawsuits, one on behalf of people in immigration custody and another one on behalf of people in U.S. Marshals custody. And the lawsuit asked for a couple things. Um, first, it asked for the judge to fairly immediately uh, require that people who are medically vulnerable uh, to the um, to the virus to be um, released. And then it also asks for the general population inside the facility to be reduced. So for more people to be released until it can get down to a level at which people would be able to maintain that six foot distance from each other. And so uh, it doesn't specify exactly how many people that needs to be but it says that the facility should work to release people until it reaches that point. And so that's what the lawsuit asked for, for both ICE and U.S. Marshals. Where we're at with those, um, the judge has ordered for people in ICE custody and immigration custody who are medically vulnerable. Um, ICE had to review all of those cases and release as many as they could. There were about 35 people on ICE's list of medically vulnerable people who did not get released because ICE said that um, they couldn't release them due to their criminal histories. Um, but everyone else has been has been in the process of getting out. There are still some who are waiting for medical clearance because of either exposure to the virus or or um, you know already testing positive for the virus, and so waiting for that medical clearance before they can be released. Uh, but most of the rest have. Um, on the U.S. Marshal side, um, the judge actually just ordered over the weekend, and so this story will be coming for me a little bit later today. You haven't read this yet, but the judge um, denied the request for medically vulnerable people in U.S. Marshal's custody to be released. And it's because of that distinction um, between sort of civil detention and, and being held on, on for uh, criminal charges. Mm-hmm. And also we've seen uh, similar kind of actions with uh, people inside jails as well, in which if they've been deemed, you know, safe enough to release, they have been in the middle of this pandemic. 
But uh, so far, one individual has died in the Otay Mesa Detention Center. What do we know about Carlos Ernesto Escobar Mejia? So Carlos Ernesto Escobar Mejia uh, was 57. He would have been 58 later this month. Um, he's from El Salvador, and he spent the last 40 years of his life living in the Los Angeles area. Uh, he lived with his sister, Rosa, and uh, they both lived with their mother until their mother passed a few years ago. Um, he has several other siblings, and he was the only one in the family who hadn't managed to get um, get a green card or, or citizenship in this country. Um, his sisters are U.S. citizens, and um, he had been sort of in the process of, of trying to figure out how to adjust things. Um, he had some old... Uh, old uh, convictions on his on his record on the criminal side that made made it harder for him to be eligible for some of the different ways that someone can apply to be able to stay in this country. Um, but he was he was working with an attorney on a case and had been since 2012. Um, he was with a friend in a car down here in the San Diego area, and they got um, arrested by border patrol and sent to Otay Mesa Detention Center in January. And um, he was already diabetic and had high blood pressure. Um, his diabetes was not well controlled. He had had to have, I think, five surgeries that ultimately led, left him without his right foot. Um, so he was already, you know, struggling with, with that condition. Um, and then while he was inside, he ended up uh, contracting COVID-19 he was hospitalized in late April, and he died last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the family that, as you said, you know, are American citizens, is there any legal recourse they could take? Because it seems, you know, immigration law can complicate things. So, I mean, in terms of, of what the, the family can do at this point, I'm I would imagine that they're they're looking and talking with lawyers about what their options are. I don't know that they've made a decision about about what the next thing is. I think they're, you know, still very much in in grief and and you know mourning the loss of their brother and um, you know trying to figure out how to move forward. Mm-hmm. So following his death, were there any changes that you heard from, you know, any authority saying, you know, after this, we're doing this or that to kind of keep people in detention more safe? Or did things just stay the same? So um, after his death, I would say I mostly heard from people in the facility who are now even more scared about what might happen to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people who also have... Uh, medical conditions who who are still inside either because they have a criminal history or because they're on the U.S. Marshall side. Um, after hearing about Carlos's death, they are also, you know, increasingly concerned about what it might mean for them. Um, in terms of what's being done at the facility now, we know that, um, as I said, at the end of April, it became mandatory for employees to wear masks uh, we know that once somebody tests positive, they're moved to a different housing unit with other people who have tested positive. Um, we know that 
if someone is symptomatic but hasn't yet tested positive, that person is likely still in the general population. People aren't being isolated until they actually test positive. Um, I haven't heard any changes on that recently. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a difficult situation. We know that um, the facility has stopped uh, having people in its custody work in the kitchens. The kitchen was one of the places where it seemed like the initial spread um, really got around through the different pods because people were working in the kitchen touching the same surfaces. Um, we've heard from a number of people who tested positive that they worked in the kitchen and that's how they, how they think they got it. Um, and so more recently, they've been uh, using a vendor to bring in food. And so what detainees and inmates are telling us is that basically means they're getting uh, bologna sandwiches three times a day. Mm-hmm. And also people who work in the facility, um, do they feel like they're being adequately protected from this outbreak? People who work in the facility um, are also concerned. We've seen two lawsuits filed on behalf of employees of CoreCivic, which is the private prison company that runs the facility for ICE and U.S. Marshals. And we've seen two of their employees, one is now a formal employee, um, who have filed lawsuits alleging that they were not protected by their employer, that they were not being provided safe conditions to work given the COVID-19 outbreak there. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, citing your work, California Senator Kamala Harris has called on the department's inspector general to investigate the facility. Where does that stand right now? That's a really good question. I haven't heard anything from the office of the inspector general since that request was made. Um, I don't know how staffed up that office is right now, given you know, the stay at home orders in various places and how quickly they'll be able to turn around a report, but that um, request from Harris's office was was specific to an incident that occurred the first time that detainees and inmates were given masks. Um, Core Civic handed them uh, contracts that had this hold harmless clause in them, and a lot of the detainees and inmates refused to sign because they believed that if they signed. Uh, they would basically be saying that if they get sick, it's not CoreCivic's fault and they weren't willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And so um, there was one one housing unit in particular that was for uh, women who are in immigration custody where they became very concerned and upset that they weren't being given masks without signing these contracts on that day. And so um, tensions rose in the housing unit between um, the guard and the the women there. And it got to the point where, according to the women, they were threatened with pepper spray. Um, some of the women have said that they actually were pepper sprayed. And so Harris's office wants the office of the inspector general to look into this incident and figure out what actually happened, because we've we've heard these different accounts of, of what went down that day. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's something that uh, we kind of hear multiple times when reporting on detention facilities or jails. There's often lots of hearsay on both sides, and it's kind of difficult to figure out what the truth is. Yeah, it's, you know, one of the things that I do as much as I can in my reporting is is be there, you know, being on the ground, watching uh, with my own eyes what's happening so that I can 
be as accurate and reliable as I can with with the truth of of how things are being implemented. But with detentions detention center reporting, um, it's a little bit difficult to do that because I can't be there and, and watch myself. And so um, it does, you know, require a different kind of a different kind of fact checking from just watching with my eyes in order to figure out as best I can what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and do you feel that authorities during this time have been, you know, as transparent as they have been in the past? Or are they using this as a chance to be more opaque? Have you noticed any changes with that? Um, I mean, I don't know that I've seen a change in transparency. It's always been um, a little bit difficult to get information about uh, the detention center, I would say, um, you know, I would say that the, you know, the spokesperson for CoreCivic has been very responsive to my questions. They don't always answer all of the questions that I ask, but they almost always send me a reply that says something. Um, and, you know, on the ICE side, it's, it's pretty similar. Um, a lot of times I do get directed to their website, but they do, they do have a website that lists all of the things that they say they're doing sort of generally across the board around the country for people in their custody. Um, but when it, get, it comes to, you know, specific instances or specific claims that someone says, you know, they tested me and I tested positive, but they forgot to move me for 24 hours. I don't get answers from from either Core Civic or ICE or U.S. Marshals about what was going on with that person, when they were moved, why they weren't moved. And, and a lot of that that, you know, they say has to do with privacy reasons, but um they won't even make, you know, sort of a general statement about how that's going. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, you've been covering immigration uh, for as long as Donald Trump has been president. It's been the story of this administration. What has it been like to see the virus kind of take up all this space and kind of change this reality that us in San Diego, you know, have grown so accustomed to with immigration being the story for years? Well, I guess for me, immigration is still the story. I mean, it's my job, so I'm, um, you know, a little hyper-focused. But um, the intersection of the coronavirus and immigration stories is, is, there's so much there. And it's not just the detention center. I know I've been focused a lot on what's going on in the detention center because that's an especially big story for our region you know, especially when you look at, you know, employees are from the detention center are members of our community. And just, you know, when you look at how the virus spreads, but, you know, there've been a lot of immigration policy changes that have happened um, during this pandemic, um, using the pandemic as a reason to do things that the administration has said they've wanted to do for a long time. Um, And it's raised a lot of questions about whether those things are entirely necessary or whether it's something that that officials are using the pandemic in order to accomplish, especially when you look at, you know, access to asylum and and issues like that. Um, We do see a lot still happening. Um, And when you look at immigration courts, immigration courts, 
um, were very slow to shut down and many of them are still operational. Um, people in the detention center are still having their cases heard by judges in the downtown court over a video. And, you know, there are, you know, the judges union has said that that needs to stop, that it's putting the judges at risk and the judges are part of our community. And so, you know, I think there's still a whole bunch of ways in which you can tell the story of what's happening to our community through stories on on my beat because even even during this time immigration is still something that is very much at the forefront of of what you know this administration is is talking about and, and making changes to mm-hmm. and just like we've seen uh, over the past coming months people who have the least are disproportionately impacted by the virus and that includes immigrants as well Absolutely. When you look at, you know, who are our frontline workers, whether it's medical industry or, or, you know, many of the other industries that are still operational, I get emails every day um, about, you know, the percent of, of people in those roles who are immigrants or the children of immigrants or, you know, members of, of our immigrant community in one way or another. And, um, you know, that's, that's a big part of the story as well. Mm-hmm. All right, Kate Morrissey, thank you so much for this vital reporting. Thank you. Now your coronavirus update. Two local leaders sent a letter to California Governor Gavin Newsom Monday urging him to allow the San Diego region to reopen on its own terms. Last week, after announcing that some retail businesses could reopen, the governor laid out a set of metrics that counties would need to meet if they wanted to deviate from the state's phased reopening plan. Some of those metrics, which included logging no COVID-19 deaths in the past 14 days, made it clear that San Diego County and other large urban counties would not qualify. The letter was written by San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner and County Supervisor Greg Cox. They argued that the region is prepared to thoughtfully reopen and includes a set of reopening strategies put together by the responsible COVID-19 Economic Reopening Advisory Group. Newsom said he planned to provide additional guidance in the coming weeks about the reopening of additional locations like offices, restaurants, and outdoor malls. County officials also reported 139 new COVID-19 cases and no additional deaths Monday. The new cases represent about 5% of the 2,638 tests that were conducted Sunday. To date, 5,065 residents have been sickened by the novel coronavirus and 175 have died. An estimated 2,966 people have recovered. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. We want to remind you that information is your first line of defense. The San Diego Union Tribune is dedicated to bring you the latest news in print, online, and on our podcasts. Right now, you can read our public health stories related to the virus online for free without hitting the paywall. But you can get all of your news at your fingertips, wherever and whenever you want if you're a subscriber. Don't miss a story. Go to uniontrib.com slash subscribe. Until next time.